0: We're continuing our uh, look at the attributes of God. We're going to look at perfection, spirituality, and invisibility. Spirituality and invisibility are going to go together. One is the consequence of the other. We're going to begin by looking at God's perfection. And this should be a fairly short discussion because we've been talking about his perfection all along. We've been talking about each of his attributes are Perfect. But I think especially today as we look at perfection and spirituality, what you're going to see is all of these attributes qualify one another. We talked about simplicity, that God is one simple divine essence, and every attribute qualifies and affects the other attributes. And that is especially true when we talk about perfection. When we say that God is perfect, that is to say that God is the sum total of all of his perfections. He is all of his perfections together. Baving said, the one whom no greater, higher, or better can exist in thought or reality. He's the highest, greatest thing imaginable that can possibly exist or that anyone can possibly come up with. Um, To understand perfection, let's take a moment and look at it from the perspective of can a creature be perfect in any sense? Is there a sense in which a creature can have some form of perfection? Well, creatures can have a finite and a specific form of perfection. It's not the exact same as the perfection of God, because that would be heresy. Perfection for the creature is attained when the standards of the creature are fully realized. So here's a good example. Uh, you come to class or you come to men's Bible study and Joey is teaching and he gives his one of his famous quizzes or infamous quizzes, whatever you want to call it, and you go through and you do the quiz and then we go back to go over it and you get all of your answers right. You score a 100%. The standard that is set is the quiz itself. And according to that standard, you have achieved perfection. You answered the quiz perfectly. When I achieve the benchmark set by someone else, I have, in a sense, become perfect in that very limited, finite way. Does that make sense? But a creature can only be perfect when the standard is set by another creature. When we set standards for ourselves or we set... someone else, let's say, in a class, on a quiz. That's the only way we can be perfect, and it's very, very, very limited. The problem with creaturely perfection is that God is the one who ultimately sets the standard. It's not us who sets the standard. And when God sets the standard, he sets an infinite and perfect standard, which we can never meet. When we talk about perfection and we say that God is perfect, Bavinck says, inasmuch as the idea of God fully corresponds to his being and nature, that is a really fancy way of saying this, God is judged and assessed by no other standard than himself. We might be assessed by a standard like a quiz. God's standard is his own perfect nature. He answers to no one else. There is nothing else that can judge him. He is beyond any sort of measurement. A quiz is a measurement of how well you understand a subject. There is no quiz that you can give God. He is beyond all of that. His perfection, you might say, is infinite. His perfection is without limitation. Uh... This is through the Psalms, Psalm 145-3, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. You can you can study and study and study and study, and you will never fully comprehend how perfect God truly is. You'll never reach the depths of his perfection. His total greatness is beyond our ability to come to comprehend. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Notice his works are perfect. His works are beyond scrutiny. They're beyond all critique. There's nothing that needs to be improved. There's nothing that needs to be updated, revised, corrected, edited. He doesn't make mistakes. They're infinitely perfect. They're beyond every form of measurement, beyond every external standard. And not only are his works perfect, but his justice is perfect. Remember, we talked about simplicity? They qualify one another. God never punishes the innocent. There's never been an innocent person ever punished by God. And God always punishes every sin. He doesn't miss a single one. He doesn't skip one. He doesn't decide, well, I'm just going to pretend like that didn't happen. He never suffers from corruption or bias. He's not like a human judge that can be bribed or paid off or might become weak one day and decide, maybe injustice here is a better idea. It's perfect justice. Infinitely perfect. And if you still aren't sure that God is perfect, remember we said that he is judged by the standard of himself? Well, he holds you to the same standard. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect. And why are you to be perfect? Because God is perfect. This is talking about moral perfection. God is morally perfect. Without any stain of sin. Without any dirt. Moral dirt or decay. First John 1 says that God is light. And in him there is no darkness. None. Zero. But if God is perfect morally, and if God is the standard of what we are to be, and his perfection is beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to emulate, If God is infinitely and perfectly just, we've got something of a problem, don't we? We've got a big problem. Because God might be all of those things, and he is. What's the problem? We're not. (laughs) That's the big problem. And because God is perfect in his justice, there's no... Chance that he's going to overlook the reality that we are not fitting the standard, that we don't meet the standard. There's no hope that he's going to say, well, I'm just going to let that one go. But what hope do we have? Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. God's justice is perfect. But his mercy is also perfect. His mercy never fails. It never falls short. It never comes up deficient. It's never diminished. It can never be exhausted. It will never run out. You can't overcharge the account. It is infinitely perfect. So how is it possible that you have this infinite supply of mercy? Well, because you also have an intercessor who is himself God. And that intercessor is also perfect. Hebrews 7, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God, through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a perfect high priest. In the Old Testament, they had a human high priest. And that high priest had to go in and first make atonement for his own sins. Now you have an infinitely perfect high priest. And this perfect high priest argues your case with perfect arguments. He pleads for, prays for, with perfect prayers and petitions. And if you want to know how good he is at his job, if you want to see his perfection in his work, notice the f- first part of that sentence. He is able also to save forever. He saves perfectly. In John 10, he says, I will not lose one. None will be lost. Dane Ortland. Some of you have read this little book. The Divine Son never ceases to bring His atoning life, death, and resurrection before His Father in a moment-by-moment way. Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail here on earth. As much as you may sin, He perfectly intercedes and atones for all of it. One last quote from Dane. Our sinning goes to the uttermost. But his saving goes to the utter, uttermost. And his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. God is perfect in every way imaginable. Christ is also God, and he is perfect in every way imaginable. And his intercession and his atonement is perfect for you and for your sin. Any questions on perfection? By our standard, yes. (laughs) Maybe. Any questions? Comments? No? All right. Let's talk about spirituality. When we talk about spirituality, we're not talking about what people think in this world. You know, people say, well, I'm very spiritual. It's not what we're talking about. Spirituality refers to God's essence. What is God made of? What is his essence? Uh, Biblical doctrine defines it this way. God's spirituality and invisibility describe his perfect lack of material in the divine essence, so that his essence cannot be perceived by the physical senses. God is not made of materials. This desk is made of material. I am made of material, but God is completely immaterial. And if we say that God is immaterial, that God is not made of stuff, there's some implications to that. The first one is that we should not think of him in terms of size or dimensions. If you think of God in terms of size, then you would say you could measure him. I can measure this table. It has dimensions. It's physical. I can get out a tape measure and I can tell you how long it is, how wide it is, how high it is. But measuring God would be, since he's immaterial, it would be like kind of, kind of like taking a tape measure and trying to measure wind. Doesn't really work, does it? He's immaterial. You cannot put dimensions to him. He's not infinitely large or infinitely small. Even if you put infinite in front of the descriptor, it doesn't work. No measurements apply. And this goes back when we talked about um, uh, infinity. God is infinite. His essence is not spatial. We talked about an omnipresence. He doesn't take up space. Well, he doesn't take up space because he's immaterial. Yes? So, I know that we talked about you know, God is never ending, eternal. Is that putting a limitation on him in a sense? Like, it says he is not infinite large or infinite small. Is that putting a, a limitation? A, a, a human? To... Human aspect here, is what putting a limitation uh, saying he's saying small that he's eternal. no because no beginning, e- no end. E- eternal um, doesn't just mean that you take the two ends of the timeline and push it out right. it means that he is completely separate from time exactly. and he stands okay. distant from time okay. does that make sense yeah yeah um To say that he is a size, if you were to say God is really, 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 really big, that would be a limitation. Um, He's he's not spatial at all. Uh, Nor should we think of him as being similar to anything in creation. How do you relate the immaterial? You know, we just I just used the example of wind, but wind is not actually immaterial, is it? You can feel it for a reason. And there are many who have taught and have said, well, God is not immaterial. He's not a spirit. God is just like us. God is flesh and bone. I'll give you one quote, really short. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. Oh, I know. (laughs) Okay, well... Okay, we know it's it's Joseph Smith, so we kind of expect it. But then you have to ask, well, how did he come up with that? Even if it's wrong, how did he get there? Well, here's how he got there. He went into Scripture and took things the wrong way. Like, for example, the Bible says that God has a heart. But now your kingdom shall endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. God has a heart. I have a heart. God's just like me. Therefore, my heart yearns for Him. God must have a heart. He must be just as physical as I am. I'm speaking right now. I'm using my mouth to speak. Guess what? God speaks. He must have a mouth. God is also said to walk. Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so because he walks, he must have feet. Now I realize in this room, there's no one here who actually reads that and thinks that way. But this is how people look at this text. God is said to have hands. Your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. So he has a right and a left hand. And if you think of God just as being a human being, then you have to come to the conclusion that God is a really massive guy. He's just a a giant in the sky. Because it says that he has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by a span. The span would be from thumb to pinky. So if God is a physical being like us, then God must be this massive giant living in the sky. Now, that's kind of silly. Herman Baving said, nowhere is a body assigned to him. This is anthropomorphic language. That is to say, this is just language that brings God down to a level that we can understand. This is just a mercy of God that he explains himself in a way that makes sense to us. How could God to express some of these ideas without using human language? Remember, he's a God beyond comprehension. So how does he relate to us without this kind of language? It would be impossible for us to relate with him. Okay. So God's not a body. He doesn't have physical parts. Well, then he must be something else something else that I can relate to. He must be something like energy or steam or air. That must be what God is. What's wrong with that? I heard someone. I don't know who it was. It's like he's reading my slides. Yeah, these are all created. All right, who can come up with another problem? Who else is reading my slides? They're measurable, okay. They can be manipulated. Those are good, I didn't put those on my slide. That's good. Someone else is reading my slides. These are all impersonable. These are not persons. These are are inanimate objects. These are things. If God is air, energy, steam, or space, he's not a person. He's a thing. God is not a spirit in the same way that we have spirits. And for many of the same reasons, our spirits are created. And our spirits are limited by time and space. So even when we say that God is spirit, and that is what we'll say, we want to make sure we don't Make him exactly like us. Uh, Wayne Grudem, we must affirm that to picture God as existing in a form or mode of being that is like anything else in creation is to think of God in a horribly misleading and dishonoring way. If you try to shrink God down to something that's easy to understand, you end up dishonoring him, you end up robbing him of his glory. The Old Testament and the New Testament both give descriptions of God that defy physicality. That make it impossible for God to be a physical being. When you go through the Old Testament and you read through what it says about God, it ascribes to him attributes that cannot be true of anything physical. Remember all the attributes we've been talking about so far? The Old Testament says that God is eternal. Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. God is an eternal God. What do you know about creation? What do you know about physical things? (laughs) They're not. They cannot be eternal. Anything in time, anything that is created is passing. Eternality cannot be true of anything physical. If Joseph Smith was correct if his theology is correct, that God is a man just like we are, then God can't be eternal because he had a start date. He had a beginning. He was created at some point. He said if Joseph Smith was correct, then Nietzsche would have to be correct. God is dead. Um... Another one on eternity. Indeed, I lift up my hand to the heaven and say, As I live forever. He is without beginning, He's without end. He's omnipresent. Psalm uh, 139. Where can I go from your, your spirit? Again, remember omnipresence? God is everywhere at all times, and He's everywhere fully and completely. How could that possibly be true of a physical being? the only way you can have omnipresence is if God is spirit. I'm sorry? If he's spirit? Yeah. If he was physical and he was everywhere, you would be able to see him. But let's take that a little, let's keep running with that. If God was physical if he was a physical object and he was omnipresent everywhere, what's the problem? There's no room for anything else. God can't be everywhere and be omnip- be physical. So he has to be a spirit. Uh, Isaiah, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare? God is unlike anything in the creation. He cannot be compared to anything in the physical world. If you say God is like X, you've just diminished him. You've just robbed him of his glory. There is nothing in creation that truly and fully represents the nature of God. And because of that, if there's nothing in the creation that can represent and truly display who God is, what's the implication of that? The implication is you can't make an image of him. There's no image that you can make of God that is not a form of blasphemy. Deuteronomy 5, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, that too shouldn't be there, or in the water under the earth. Now there are some who say, no, 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 we need images. Images are helpful. Making images of God doesn't really rob him of his glory because God is loving and kind and he wants us to know who he is. And there are some people who can't read the Bible. And they need help understanding who God is. And so just like we do with small children, we need to give them pictures so they can understand who God is. And these images are actually a kind of mercy and benevolence. What do you guys think of that? <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Sounds Catholic." Yeah. A <laughs> worshipper of the object, you know, the the created thing instead of the thing that created. Yeah. Eventually, you'll end up worshiping the, the 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 statue or the picture itself. Did you have something? No. Okay. It's really bad theology. But what are we actually teaching them? If you show a picture to a small child and you say, this is God. This is what God is like. This is a picture of God. I'm sorry? Okay. What are we teaching about God's essence, though? Yeah, he's physical. You're teaching him that he's just like the creation. Uh, John Calvin responded this way. If we were to grant them that, false though it is, since images exist in popery, that would be Catholicism, only to be worshipped, I fail to see what benefit images of God might be to the illiterate except to make them anthropomorphites, that is, believers in a corporal God. If you're going to teach them who God is and you're going to use an image to do it, what you've done is you've taught them that God is a physical being. You've essentially taught them Mormon theology. And you've made God just like his creation. I don't think you've actually helped them at that point. You've diminished the essence and the glory of God. Yeah, that would be a sin. I mean, you just step aside from the fact that you're you're bowing and worshiping before an image. You know, golden calf again but you're diminishing and blaspheming God. Yeah. No. No. It, it's not faith because you're 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 creating what you want rather than believing what he said. Even if you say, well, look, Jesus was a man. We can we can represent Jesus as a person. G- Does anyone think Jesus looks exactly like you and I right now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the Mormon Jesus, yeah? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was raised in the Catholic Church, so... We had all these images, but it was always amazing that Jesus was always this kind of this soft, you know, very gentle-looking, like he never worked a day in his life. He was a carpenter. The guy probably had gnarly hands and calluses and didn't look anything like that. And certainly doesn't look like that today in his glorified state, right? All right. We've hit that. Habakkuk just in case anyone was wondering Habakkuk calls it calls images of God teachers of lies. What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image a teacher of falsehood? you're just teaching them lies. That's the good verse for the, those people. God has no physical form. If he's not physical, he can't have a form. Uh, from the Old Testament. He spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you saw no form. Now, you might be remembering from our study on Philippians 2. Philippians 2, in the form of God. There, the idea is the outward appearance of God. Talking about the, the radiance, his glory, right? The word here is not talking about just merely appearances. It's talking about a shape. A physical form. Um, if we had a, a bright spotlight in the back, you know, you have the bright light, and then you see the the outline or the silhouette of a person walking to you, the silhouette would be the form of a person, the shape of a person. God has no shape. He's not physical. He's a spirit. He has no form. So that's the Old Testament's description. We can look at the New Testament. We're not going to go through it verse by verse like that. Um, But the New Testament says the same things about God. God is eternal. He's omnipresent. He's invisible. And we're going to talk about invisibility here in a few minutes. And unlike the Old Testament, the Old Testament never explicitly says that God is a spirit. You're not going to find a verse in the Old Testament that says that, but the New Testament explicitly says it God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You guys remember the context of this? The woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. And she asked the question, where are we supposed to worship? Do we go to Jerusalem to worship? Or can we worship here in Samaria? And Jesus' answer is, God's spirit. God is spirit. Those who worship him will worship him in spirit. The issue is not where you're going to be. The issue is not about you going to Jerusalem. God doesn't just live in Jerusalem. All right. What does it mean that God is spirit? We've been talking about God as immaterial, that he's not a substance, but what does it actually mean when we say God is spirit? There are two terms used in scripture to describe God as being spirit. The first one is ruach. and for those of you who are who know this, that's misspelled. Not because I've intentionally misspelled it, but because keynote moved a vowel on me. So I'm I'm just guessing that someone's gonna listen to this and look at the slides online, and they're gonna be like, he misspelled that. <laughs> Some be like Ruroch, huh? Yeah, get it right. I know, I know. The little line underneath at the bottom is supposed to be all the way over to the left side and Keynote moved it and I can't figure out how to put vowels incorrectly on Keynote. So it, it is what it is. Okay, that's the first one, Rurok, And then there's Numa in the New Testament. Both of these can be used to refer to breath, to wind, or to moving air. Um, And they're both used to describe God as being spirit, speaking of the spirit of God. Here's what's interesting, though. While these are both used to describe God as being a spirit, these are both also used to describe your spirit, your soul. Um... I'm going to go through a little discussion here on metaphysics and trying to help understand why this is important. Um, If this doesn't make sense, it's not your fault. (laughs) I'll just say it that way. Um, We understand our spirit through our consciousness. Put aside the Bible for a minute in in this respect. There's not a book that you can go open up that will explain to you your spirit. You understand the functions of your spirit through your existence, through your life as you live. You understand how your spirit functions. Your spirit, when you're talking metaphysics, is a substance. Not substance as in what the table's made out of, but a substance in that it is the the grounds of everything you do. It is the foundation of your existence. Every activity, every thought, every desire, everything originates in your spirit, in your soul. The soul is the foundational entity to your existence. Your thoughts, your feelings, these are states and actions of the soul. Now, to be sure, your thoughts have a physical component to them, don't they? They occur in the brain, but they are rooted in the soul. They're rooted in the immaterial. Feelings, emotions, those things all arrive or originate from the soul. If you didn't have a soul, you'd be a lump of flesh. You wouldn't have any of those. So your spirit, you understand your spirit through your own consciousness. Your spirit is the foundation of your existence. Your spirit is an individual being. Your spirit thinks, it feels and as it thinks and feels it recognizes that it it's it identifies itself as existing excuse me your spirit exists with self awareness it can identify itself as being unique from other spirits other people um imagine if we had a camera sitting right there and that camera could see everybody in the room. Try this little experiment. Close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're looking at the monitor from that camera sitting up there, and try to see yourself sitting where you are. Raise your hand if you can see yourself in your mind's eye. All right, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. Open your eyes, look around. See all the hands up? That's self-awareness. Animals can't do that. It's only possible for creatures that have a spirit, that have a soul, they have self-awareness. And I would imagine most of you could see yourself better than you could see the other people around you. Even if you're sitting in the back and you have a view of where everyone's seated, you could probably see yourself far better than you can see everyone else because you are aware of your own situation far better than you are of anyone else. If God was energy, if God was like air or wind, or if your spirit was like air and wind, it would not have self-awareness. It's impossible. Self-awareness allows us to distinguish ourselves from everything and everyone else. You don't get confused with, you don't confuse yourself with other people in the room. Um, This is a longer quote, we'll break it up. Whatever may be the variety of the phenomena of consciousness, sensations by this or that organ, volitions, thoughts, imaginations, of all, we are immediately conscious as affections of one and the same self. Let's explain that. Your soul does a lot of things simultaneously. Right now, your soul is listening. Your soul is thinking. You have varying feelings some of you are feeling really good right now some of you are tired because the time changed some of you are just bored but you're experiencing all these emotions all these thoughts these experiences you're hearing things and it's all happening at once but you don't view yourself as compartmentalized as in you're a bunch of pieces you interpret all of those as the actions of one single entity does that make sense? The same entity is hearing, the same entity is feeling, the same entity is doing whatever it is you're doing in your head. He continues, it is not by any afterthought, any after effort of reflection that I can bind together sight and hearing, thought and volition into factious unity or compounded whole. So you have all these things going on, you're hearing, you're seeing, you're feeling, you're thinking, you're imagining, All these things are happening. It's not that you sat down later and said, okay, um, I have this going on, this going on, this... Okay, so all of that comes together and that's, that's all happening to me. You didn't have to think of it that way, did you? It just all happened. You recognize that you are one entity. You are one person. In each case, I am immediately conscious of myself, seeing and hearing, willing and thinking. Self-awareness. The soul is aware of what is happening to it, what's happening around it, what's happening inside of it. Our spirit has power. Not power is, you know, divine power, but the power of thought, feeling, and volition. Volition would be the ability to choose, to make decisions. That is to say that your spirit has self-determination. Um... If you have a dog, your dog cannot think about next week. He can't plan ahead. You can, and you should, but your dog can't. He might be able to think about his next meal. Always thinking about his next meal. But he can't plan ahead. He can't determine what he's going to do later today or tomorrow. Or next week or next month. Those concepts just never enter into his head. He doesn't have self determination. He doesn't have a spirit. He doesn't have a soul. He's animated, but he's not self aware. He's not self determinative. And we know that we exist because we have thoughts, feelings, and volitions. You don't need someone to tell you that you are living. You already know it. Now, if this is true of us, if this is true of me, and if it's true of you, then we can assume it's true of every human being, of every spirit. We've kind of mentioned this already, but our spirit is simple. Who remembers simplicity? I think I've already mentioned it once today. Who can define simplicity? No parts. Good, yeah. One simple whole, no parts. Your spirit is simple. Not simple in the same way God is simple, but that is to say that your spirit is not made up of different substances. It's not a composite. It's not a mixture of different things that come together to make it. It is one simple whole. It doesn't have parts. It can't be divided. It can't be separated out it is one simple whole now you have attributes and those attributes change you grow in knowledge you forget things you grow in your holiness right but the essence of your spirit does not is not divided our spirit has personality that's personhood Not everything that exists has personality. Like we said, the, the dog doesn't have personality in the sense of personhood. Only things that think, feel, will, and have self-determination are said to be persons. Now we need to be careful here. Because if you define personhood apart from a recognition of the Spirit, you act and you define it this way, personhood is the ability to think, feel, will, and have self-determination. If that is personhood, what's the problem? What about a person in a coma? They don't think, they don't feel, they don't will, they don't make choices, they don't have self-determination, they're in a coma. If that's how you define personhood, that only those who think, feel, will, and have self-determination are persons, then a person in a coma is not a person. Yeah. I don't know to what extent they're thinking and feeling in the womb, but, yeah, but that's the argument that they'll use. This is not a person. A person can determine their own future. A person can think and feel. But we need to understand personhood comes from the reality of a spirit. The spirit is a person. And that person does these things. Yes? Still a person, right? Yeah. But if you detach it and say there is no spirit, then these things are what define personhood, right? Yeah. Even if you don't have a body, you still have a personhood because... Your spirit is the one that does all these actions. To be a person means you have a spirit, that means you have self awareness, the ability to think, and the ability to choose. Our spirits are also moral agents. You possess moral character to varying degrees. Some people in the world have more or less moral character than others. You're under a moral obligation even atheists who live reprobate lives have some sense of morality. There are some things even they won't do. I worked in corrections. They have their own moral code. It's just not aligned with what Scripture says. It's their own devised moral code. All right. Let's summarize all that. To summarize it, your spirit is a simple, uncompounded being. Your spirit thinks... Wills, feels, and chooses. Your spirit possesses self-determination. It is moral. It is self-aware and unique. And it is a person. Does that sum it all up? Bring it all together? That is that is a description of what your spirit is. God is spirit. And if those things define what a spirit is, then God must be a person. He is not some inanimate force out there or energy. He has to be a person. He has to be self-conscious, self-aware. Not self-conscious in the idea of staring in a mirror, but self-aware. He has to be able to think. He has to be intelligent. It's the nature of a spirit. He is volitional. He has the ability to make choices, to choose. He must be simple, one simple uncompounded essence, not divided up into parts. And he must be moral. He must have a moral code, a moral obligation. Does this make sense? Everybody following me? Any questions? Okay. Charles Hodge looked at this. Now remember, we're we're talking about, we, we looked at this from the perspective that the, the words to describe the Spirit of God are the same words to describe your spirit. So in some sense, they have to be similar. These are the ways in which your spirit is similar to the Spirit of God. Charles Hodge said these are primary truths which are not to be sacrificed to any speculative ob- objections. God must be a person. He must have intelligence. He must have the ability to choose. All right, any questions on spirituality? The spirit of God. No. Invisibility. God is a spirit. He's not physical. If God is not physical, if he's not material, then your physical senses cannot perceive him. Your eyes cannot see him. You cannot feel him unless he wants you to feel his presence. But your natural senses are incapable of detecting him. Wait a minute. Hang on a second. I read my Bible. The Bible says that people spoke with God face to face. Moses spoke to God face to face. And it wasn't just Moses. This is Moses again. In fact, all of Israel, they saw the God of Israel. The whole nation saw him. Moses spoke to him face to face. All the nation of Israel saw him. Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Jacob. Jacob. Not only saw him, he wrestled with him. So, if God is invisible, how can that be true? He took form; he made it possible. These visions are called theophanies. Some of them, you would say they're christophanies, but we won't go there. In a theophany, in, in an appearing of God, we're not talking about people looking upon the actual essence of God. They're not seeing the actual divine essence. Why? Because God is not physical. Their eyes can't detect immaterial. He doesn't have shape, color, or size. He can't be seen. But when God appears, he appears using or utilizing creation. He uses things like light and color or physical form to manifest his presence. His glory is revealed through the created means. So invisibility, let's just sum it up. Invisibility, God is immaterial. And when people do see him, it's only because he's using created means to manifest his presence. All right. Any questions? Perfection, spirituality, invisibility. Stunned into silence. No questions. Comments? Yes? No? Be perfect. Yeah. You know, in, you know, another place he said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And I think R.C. Sproul made this point one time. He said, look, think about the Pharisees. I mean, these guys would tithe mint and cumin. They would tithe their spices just so they could be obedient to the law. If the law said you must give 10% of everything, which actually it said more than that, but If that's what it said, they made sure they gave 10% of everything. Meticulous observation of the law. And Jesus said you have to exceed that righteousness. You have to exceed it because it's not just that you have to get most of it right. You have to get all of it right. The command of God is you must be perfect. Morally, spiritually, you must be perfect. And as we already talked about, we can't be right. So, does that answer the question? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you'll be completely set apart, free from sin in the glorified state. And, yeah. It won't be the exact perfection of God, but it'll be as close as a human can get Any other questions, comments, concerns, gripes, moans, groans, complaints? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. Um, We thank you that you are perfect, that uh, you are perfect in your mercy, that you are perfect in all of your attributes, uh, and that you, in your perfection, in your perfect mercy, you have condescended down to us that you have made yourself known to us and that you have provided a way for imperfect creatures to commune with you to fellowship with you uh, to worship with you and ultimately to spend eternity in your presence and so we thank you so much that you have done this through christ and that we have this opportunity to come to know you and we just ask that uh, we would have a right view of who you are that we would not try to diminish your glory and make you like us or make you like the world Um, but that we would try to comprehend you as you are and that we would worship you as you are in the way that you are deserving. And we ask that you would help us this morning as we worship, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.